0: Grace and mercy and peace belong to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You are going to want to have your service folder open to page number 8. I don't think I'm going to read the text just yet because we'll read it throughout the course of the sermon, its narrative, its story, and we'll refer to the whole thing in a way that we can know this, uh, this text better. Acts 27, 13 to 25, 26 is in our purview. In the name of Jesus Christ, the one, of course, who has power over the storm. And that means that he is the one who has the power over every storm and everything in your life too, my dear Christian friends. Everybody's got problems in their life. This is not a great insight. By virtue of the fact that nobody's perfect, by virtue of the fact that people are sinful, that parents are sinful, there's no perfect families, there's no perfect parents, there's no perfect people, there's not a perfect city or state or nation or government, there's not anything in this world that's perfect. And therefore, your life and my life is one great big coping mechanism dealing with my sin and the consequences of everybody else's sin. People got problems. Everybody's got problems. Not everybody copes with the problems, at least not real well, and at least not always in a real Christian way. And despite the fact that we're all Christians, oftentimes we don't deal or cope with our own problems real well either. Let me explain two common ways in which people cope with their problems that are not real handy, and I'm going to generalize for the sake of uh, brevity. The first way in which people cope with their problems, and this comes more from the sinful nature than anything, is they internalize them. They bury them down deep. Sometimes the psychologists call this repression. I just don't want to think about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to communicate about it or talk with anybody about it. It's going to cause me anxiety and stress and distress and disruption in my life. I will probably lose my appetite, probably lose weight. It might cause sadness and depression, internalization there will be people in your life who can see that whatever the problem is it's causing terrible terrible disruption to your life and they will come to you and they will say is everything alright? would you like to sit down and talk about it and no matter how close the relationship is you will bury it down deep and you will repress it and you'll say no no I'm fine after all you're lying to yourself you have to lie to everybody else then too because it's being repressed It's unhelpful. There's a better way. The second way that people deal with problems, besides internalizing, is externalizing. And it's almost exactly the opposite. But people still don't want to deal with the pain of whatever it is that's causing them problems or troubles in their life. And so rather than actually acknowledge that maybe something needs to be, say, repented of or addressed, they will just simply blame anybody and everybody in their life. Sometimes the psychologists call this projection. They'll take their own problems, and they'll project them on their boss, or their co-workers, or their job, or the institution, or the government, or their family, or their parents, or their brothers, or their sisters, or their dog, anything's fair game. Invariably, they're going to blame God. If you're a loving God, why am I having all these problems? I'm far too perfect and far too holy, and you're also far too self-righteous. I shouldn't be having any of these problems at all. Not a happy way or a handy way to wrestle with your troubles. There's a better way. There's a faith-filled way to address these problems, and that's in our text before us today. The disciples internalized stress, worry, fear, trouble. And Jesus rebuked them and said, Why are you afraid? Do you have no faith at all? The Apostle Paul, however, is in the middle of being shipwrecked, and he's the one who speaks the word of encouragement and confidence because of his faith in God and of Jesus Christ that when you've got God, there's always hope. Let me give you a little bit of context that leads into Acts chapter 25. The apostle Paul was a prisoner. In fact, being a prisoner, I suppose you could argue that's already a problem in the first place. How does Paul handle being a prisoner? Do you remember this? In the introductory letter to the book of... Philippians, kind of a famous section where the Philippian congregation is losing their minds. They're freaking out. Are you going to die? Are you on death row? Are you well fed? Are you hungry? Is there anything else I can do? And Paul says, Would you please calm down? To live is Christ, to die is gain. Yeah, I'm on death row. Yeah, there's charges against me. And maybe it'll go against me, in which case, I'll die and go to heaven. That doesn't sound so bad. That's a win. charges are going to be dropped in which case i'll go on being your pastor that sounds like a win and in the meantime here i am in prison but i've got a captive audience here and i'm working on preaching the gospel and i'm converting the whole prison guard so i've got a mission field right in front of me that's a win you see how in the midst of paul's own imprisonment which i think we would call problem It's not, woe is me, it's not internalization, externalization, false charges. He simply says, I belong to Christ, and to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's the same kind of confident attitude that Paul now applies when he's on this boat. And despite the fact that he's in prison, he's in the process of being transferred to Rome, where he's going to have to face Caesar and Roman law. Now, Paul was amongst, uh, later on in the book of Acts, it says, 276 people on this boat. And there's prisoners, and there's Roman soldiers, and there's crew who have to sail the ship, and they're being paid to transport the prisoners from one side of the Mediterranean to the other. They gotta get them to Rome. But maybe about three verses, four verses before our text begins, it actually says it's after the fast, which is a reference to the Day of Atonement that happens end of September, early October every year. That's kind of code language to say, nobody sails on the Mediterranean after September. If I can use an analogy, nobody goes on a Caribbean cruise in August and September because hurricanes. It's common knowledge in these days, too. Nobody was, the weather's too terrible. It's too unpredictable. You're taking your life into your own hands if you're going to transport or if you're going to sail across the Mediterranean. In fact, Paul, who had been so positive and upbeat, had built a little bit of a relationship with the chief guard, the the captain guy who was in charge of all the other prisoners, and he actually said to him when they docked, you know, we should winter here. We don't need to go on. We're taking our life into our own hands. The ship's gonna break up. You're gonna lose your money. You're gonna lose the ship. You're gonna lose the cargo. You're probably gonna lose your own life. Don't do this. But the captain of the guard said, no, no, maybe because he was gonna get paid if he delivered them on time. We gotta press on. And so, begins our text, and you can follow along reading with that little bit of a background, in verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they thought, they're docked in Crete, they thought that they had obtained what they wanted. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. But before very long, a wind of hurricane force, called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and couldn't head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. And as we passed to the lee of a small island called Kauda, we were hardly able even to make the lifeboat secure. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. And finally, on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storms continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved." See where they are? Hopelessness. We gave up all hope of being saved. A lot of internalizing going on. Fear, worry, anxiety. And who did they have to blame? Themselves. They never should have set sail in the first place. Nevertheless, there they are in the midst of the Mediterranean Ocean and they're getting blasted by a northeaster, essentially hurricane force winds and they're doing every single thing humanly possible so the ship doesn't break up and drown one of the things they did is that the lifeboat it's kind of being dragged behind and it was flipping and flapping and flailing in the winds and it was banging against the ship so they had to pick that thing up and throw it into the ship they passed ropes underneath to kind of hold the whole ship together they tossed Supplies out, flotsam and jetsam, because the winds were causing the waves to crash onto the ship and it was sinking lower into the water so that the same ship was being about to capsize and sink. And so they got all the weight out of the boat. They're doing everything humanly possible so they don't drown and die. There's mention in there, too, that they dropped a so-called sea anchor, which is a great big heavy thing because if the winds are coming from the north, the northeaster, it's going to blow them down basically from up near Turkey, remember they're sailing if you get geography in your head, they're wanting to go to Rome, it was blowing them down to North Africa. So if they drop the sea anchor and it drags along the bottom, maybe we're not going to be blown into the middle of the Mediterranean where we'll absolutely have no hope of being saved. But they lost hope when the storm persisted for several days. Now you remember how these old navigators navigated before GPS? They navigated by the stars, right? Well, when there's a storm outside, you can't see the stars. And when the clouds are black, whether day or night, they have absolutely no... they don't know where they are, they don't know where they're going, they don't know where they've been blown, they don't know how long the ship is going to... and they they just... they just gave up hope. They thought for sure that they were all goners. The anxiety and the worry and the stress, self-induced because they never should have sailed in the first place, it was overwhelming to all of them. When, when these storms, sort of speak, problems, troubles come into our life, I mean, shipwreck is probably not a common thing that we wrestle with, but we've got plenty of problems in our life of our own sicknesses and illnesses and hospitalizations and chronic pain loved ones who are facing substance abuse narcotics alcohol Uh, we have our own personal addictions to sin that shall not be mentioned from the pulpit and certainly not to any kind of loved one because we're too busy internalizing it and we don't want to face it or maybe even give it up maybe the marriage or the relationship is not going so hot or maybe if you're a teenager the stress and the press of duties, deadlines, expectations by parents or teachers or colleges or exams, it's just all got you pressed down and buried underneath. You pick it. What is the problem that's going on in your life? Water is capsizing the boat sinking down in the water? Are you to the point yet where you feel like these guys do here, where there's no hope left? There's a proverb. It's in, uh, I think it's in chapter 12, that says, an anxious heart weighs a man down. But a kind word lifts him up. Now you tell me. If you're on the boat, sailing from Crete to Rome, what weighed that boat down more? The water that was piling in from the hurricane-force winds, or the distrusting, fearful, anxious hearts that seemingly had no faith or trust in God? Boy, didn't those people need a kind word from the Apostle Paul. And that's just exactly what they got. Let's read the second half of our text, verse 21. After the men had gone a long time without food, by the way, that's internal evidence there that suggests that they were so petrified and anxious that they were starving themselves, they just couldn't eat, their appetites had gone uh, gone away. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, "Men, you should take my advice and not sail from Crete, and then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now, I urge you to keep your courage up, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God, whose I am and whom I serve, stood beside me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as God told me. Nevertheless, we're going to have to run aground on some island." The first thing that the Apostle Paul mentions, some people might argue, was a little bit of an I told you so. You should have never sailed in the first place. But Paul is not really wanting to say, and I told you so. What Paul is wanting to do is say, I gave you good advice in the past, and it turned out to be just, as I mentioned, I want you to listen to me now. Take courage. Take heart, because with God there is always hope. In fact, the Lord God spoke to me and said, you can have courage. All of the human possessions and property are going to be busted up and lost at sea, but your lives are going to be spared. The ship is going to run aground and we'll be able to swim to the shores of Malta if we read and even a few verses later, that's exactly what happened. But these men who are weighed down with dissipation and anxiety needed the voice of the Apostle Paul to come in and say, there is courage, there is hope, our lives are going to be spared. Now, maybe you guys are of the opinion to say, well, yeah, it's real nice when God whispers that in your ear. When I've got the addictions or any of the other problems, chronic pain, I have no whisper of God in my ear that says, you should have hope and courage, it's not the same. Well, you tell me, how did the saints in the Bible handle their troubles and problems and storms, as it were, when it came upon them? They all handled them differently, didn't they? Remember when God called Moses? He was pretty scared. Didn't want to do the job. In fact hold God off and said, I'm not your guy. Go find somebody else. God was pretty upset with Moses at that point. Joshua, after Moses died, was going to lead the Israelites into the Promised Land. Scared to death. Gideon, from the smallest tribe of Benjamin, God said, go fight these Assyrians. 135,000 of them. And Gideon said, I don't think so. I'm not your guy. The disciples... When we heard in our gospel lesson, they're in almost exactly the same situation as the Apostle Paul. Not their finest moment. Not only are they petrified and scared and internalizing and worry, which never helps anything, the panic, but they even go so far as to wake up Jesus and accuse him of a lack of compassion, and you really want us to be killed and die, don't you? Jesus' answer, you recall, is not just the answer of a man who is crabby because got woken up in the middle of a nap instead jesus answer is i'm with you just a second Quiet. be still you disciples have seen me do this dozens of times in my life why are you afraid why are you afraid are you so faithless really how many times have we not seen the same almighty God quiet the storms in our life we say Yeah, Paul had God whisper in his ear through an angel that they were going to be fine, but we've got the same words of encouragement from God. You know what God said to Moses when Moses objected and said, I can't lead those people. Who am I that I should lead the Israelites? To which God essentially said, well, really, you're a nobody, but I'm going to be with you, and that's all you need to know. As long as I'm with you, you've got all the strength and power you need. Remember, when Joshua... Was God's next-in-command? What did God say to Joshua? It's probably some of your confirmation verses. Be strong and courageous, because I, the Lord your God, am with you wherever you go. What did God say to Gideon? What did he say? Same answer. I'm with you. What did David say when he took down the giant Goliath? The battle is the Lord's. And what was Jesus saying when he said to the disciples, Why are you afraid? I'm right here with you. Do we not have these same promises from Jesus Christ? Has he not demonstrated his almighty power significantly or powerfully enough to us? Is this sacrifice that he made on the cross, is this lost on us? The fact that he took down hell. The fact that he took down sin and Satan and death. Well, that's nice. But I don't think that that's the same kind of almighty power that can help me through my problem. Well, then we maybe deserve to have Jesus tell us the same thing as he told his disciples. Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? If we've got the almighty power of God who conquered every spiritual enemy and stands at the right hand of God as a victor who led captives in his train to the right hand of God in heaven at his ascension, if that means victory, then isn't it true that the God who calms the storm can say, shush, to whatever problem or trouble that you have in your life too? Or maybe it's just that The problems and the troubles in our life have been internalized or externalized, but we haven't really demonstrated the trust in God or the faith to which God says, okay, well, I want you to do this again. I'll have you go through this again so that you can take the faith that I've given you and use it and apply it with trust and with confidence and with courage in the same way that Paul spoke a word of encouragement to these disciples. The words of promise that God gives to you are the sorts of things that ought to make us want to run through brick walls for God. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, the same words of promise that God used for Moses and for Gideon and for Joshua and for David and for the disciples, are the same words of promise that he gives to you. I'm with you. I've got almighty power. I've conquered every enemy for you. I sit at the right hand of God and I work all things out for your good, for the good of the church. Don't be anxious then about anything, Paul says. With prayer and petition, present your requests to God. You see, the way The way we handle these troubles in life as Christians is not the internal or the external. It's with trust. It's with faith. It's with confidence. It's with courage. Not because I'm Superman or you are. It's because with God, there's always hope. Amen.